By airplane, at night, the many cities of the L.A. area appear as an unbroken blanket of lights, stretching from the Pacific Ocean in the west out toward mountains and desert land in the north and the east. In California's fourth climate assessment, the Los Angeles region includes Los Angeles, Ventura, and Orange counties, plus parts of Riverside and San Bernardino counties, too. 18 million people live in this region, almost half the population of California. Only Texas, Florida, and New York have bigger populations than this one area of California. Two of the three busiest ports in the U.S. are here, at Los Angeles and Long Beach, and people in the region speak more than 185 languages at home. We call it a metropolitan area, but in a lot of ways we'd understand the scale of it better within the context of the U.S. if we thought of it as a whole state. You can't understand how climate change will affect California without considering how it's going to play out in Los Angeles and the surrounding counties. So that's what we're going to do. This episode is all about how climate change is predicted to affect the L.A. area. You're listening to Future Imperfect. I'm your host, Shane Carter. My guides for this region were five young people who talked to me about their day-to-day experiences and their ideas about climate change. I asked them to introduce themselves and their communities. We'll start right on the coast. My name is Nias. Uh, I'm 16. Uh, I'm a junior in high school. I drive to school and all around places. I think that might be relevant. I play sports, so I'm outside a lot, running and practicing. Um, And I live really close to the beach. Nias lives in Newport Beach. I think most people are stunned by the amount of I hate to say it, but like wealth in this community because, you know, a lot of people have like Teslas, they have BMWs, they have really nice cars, like at least three or four times a day, I see like a Rolls Royce, you know, so, you know, it's like people are always, you know, kind of starstruck, I guess, but a lot of the people who have these really nice things, they aren't like famous or anything, they just have really like high paying jobs or they're really good in whatever field that they studied in. About 10 miles to the north is the city of Fountain Valley. Um, I'm Maddie Manning, and I play water polo, and I'm in swim. Um, My name is Faith Manning, and I'm in drama, and I do choir. And can each of you tell me how old you are? I'm 15, and I'm 17. So we live in Orange County, Fountain Valley, and we're not necessarily kind of close to the beach, but we're pretty close to the beach, so sometimes we'll get that ocean breeze, and it'll be warm most of the time for most days usually really cold in the mornings but usually but then it heats up throughout the day fountain valley is a bustling place maddie faith and i sat outside at a coffee shop that was kind of in the middle of a parking lot and there were streets and cars on all sides of us then 45 miles to the northeast even farther from the ocean another busy spot i asked how you listener should picture this town My name is Monique. Um, In my hometown, which is Riverside, there's many cars. You will catch many people walking around. There's there's a lot of buildings, gas stations. There's highways. It's true. There were mountains visible from where we were sitting, but Riverside is a busy, sprawling city. To a person like me, who's used to denser urban development, the valley here seems like an infinite suburb. I asked Monique what she likes to do. Um, I love, I love, love, love to just do my makeup, like just for fun. Like I never have to go anywhere. I just like to do it to see, to improve my talent because I have been doing makeup since toddler days. So it's just like a hobby that I never get bored of. Next on your mental map, head back directly westward, straight into the heart of L.A., Hi, my name is Nefertiti Garcia. Everyone just calls me Nefer. And I am currently 16 years old and I live in South Central Los Angeles. I am Mexican-American. Um, my parent, Both of my parents are Mexican immigrants. Um, 
since my school is in you know South LA, um, it is a charter school, so it's kind of small, predominantly Latino population. Um, I guess for lack of a better word, you could say I'm a nerd, <laughs> or as we say it in my school, an overachiever. So I am definitely more of uh, more of an extrovert and a sh- than I am like of a shy person, and. I'm that kid that raises your hand in class all the time, and I was always answering uh, questions. Nefer described her neighborhood as somewhat busy with both cars and people, sunny, not a lot of big trees. When people from, you know, foreign to L.A., they think L.A., they think Hollywood and stuff. Um, and I think maybe just surprises like, you know, not all of L.A. is like Hollywood. But then you hear the stereotypes from like Watts and Compton and, you know, you you see the movies and stuff, and it's like we have a mix of everything. We do have like that's, for example, my street can be for the most part pretty calm, but then in the night you hear like you know helicopters or like a million fireworks going off, and then how a few blocks away is like you see a bunch of graffiti, and then another street is like really nice. It's like, it, based I guess just the fact that there's like a mix of everything, just depending on like you know even from one street to another could be a little bit different. What kinds of stuff do people who live in your part of LA, your neighborhood, what kinds of work do people do? Do you know? Well, there is a lot of, uh, I guess you could say domestic work. If women work, like I said, it is a predominantly Latino population. So I guess like women, if they do do work, they would include things like cleaning houses or, you know, um, just like domestic services such as those. Um, my dad personally works as a sales manager at an air gas company or like one of my friends, his dad works at a plumbing service. It's, it's, um, how do I say this? It wouldn't be like typically like, you know, white collar business jobs, more kind of like on the lower end. Um, but it it really does range like from the person to person, but a lot of hands-on work, I would say. And it sounds like in the context of the pandemic right now, it's a lot of people who like can't necessarily work from home. They have to be out in the world if they're working. Right. Yeah. California's climate assessment outlines scientists' most up-to-date predictions about how the climate is likely to change in the area. There is a long list of expected changes in the Los Angeles region, including increasing heat, more variability in precipitation, sea level rise, greater wildfire danger, worsening air quality, and new infectious diseases. Sounds not great, but my question is, what will all this mean for people's day-to-day lives? How are inhabitants of this region going to experience climate change? One way to answer that question is to focus on the effects we're already seeing. Then, imagine that same thing, but more extreme, more frequent, events layered on top of one another. Let's start with Maddie. For me, it was like, it was maybe two years ago in summer, it was like a good 112 degrees. It was, like, everyone was dying, and you would just, we cracked an egg on the floor, me and my friends, and it boiled, like, the egg cooked, and we're like, oh it's that hot (laughs) it got super hot and like we just could not be outside because it was just we were dying outside it's too hot so we had to stay in the water the whole day because it was it was burning i was actually going to ask you guys about that because i remember that heat wave when it was like 112 116 down here and so and i wondered how you managed that so you were in the pool all day yeah i just couldn't be anywhere else because as for me i overheat a lot and um just so it just felt like 20 degrees hotter for me I was just a sweating mess I just could not I was like crying over the heat because it was just so bad for me and what did you do um I stayed inside a lot of time I was on the cold floor um I drank lots of water that day um just tried my best to stay cool so do you remember anything from around town like do you remember hearing about it or what anyone else was doing to kind of manage that my friends they all went to the beach or they went into the pool or they um or those who had in in, indoor in air conditioning they all stayed inside um yeah so if people didn't have air conditioning you don't have air conditioning so we but we have tile floor so we would just lie on the floor (laughs) we don't have a heater or an air condition so it just gets like 10 times hotter for us too 
So it's just, it just got really bad. I just had to stay in the pool the whole entire day. But there was also like a lot of people selling like ice cream and popsicles and stuff like that. Like people were just trying to stay cool that whole week, just trying to live. <laughs> Maddie's solution was staying in the water, but Monique disagreed. We get into maybe the high 100s, like maybe 105 or 6. So it gets a little too hot to where even swimming tires you out, even though it's the water, like you may think it's refreshing, but the sun, because it's beaming down on it, it it kind of just tires you out that you don't even want to go swimming. Like it's, it's extremely hot. Maddie and Faith aren't unusual. Only about 50% of homes in the areas around LA and Long Beach have air conditioning. Meanwhile, heat waves like the one they described are already increasing in frequency and intensity. The seven years from 2014 to 2020 were the hottest seven years on record, and we have records going back 140 years. By 2100, average annual high temperatures, meaning some locations could be higher and some lower, are expected to increase by 7 to 10 degrees Fahrenheit. These increases in heat won't be evenly distributed. Because poorer neighborhoods tend to have less green space and fewer trees, they're often actually hotter than wealthier neighborhoods, sometimes by as much as 7 degrees Fahrenheit. So the people who can least afford air conditioning are the ones who are going to need it the most. Monique raised another issue. Even assuming they have access to a pool or the ocean, people can't just stay in the water for days or weeks on end. That's not a long-term solution. The climate assessment says, and I'm quoting here, LA International Airport, LAX, historically experiences less than 15 days per year with temperatures equal to or greater than 90 degrees Fahrenheit. End quote there. But by 2100, if we don't radically decrease our greenhouse gas emissions, scientists are predicting 50 to 90, that's 50 to 90 days each year when temperatures in that area top 90 degrees. And the airport is right on the coast. The report says that farther inland, people will face 60 to 90 more days of temperatures above 95. My collaborator on this podcast was Nancy Freitas, a graduate student studying climate science at UC Berkeley. She listened to my interviews with young people, and then we discussed them. I brought my perspective from teaching history and social studies. She brought a scientist's view. If you want to learn more about Nancy and her work, you should listen to the episode called What is Climate Change? Nancy and I were both taken aback by this prediction of an extra 50 to 90 very hot days each year. I think the thing that was striking to me about it was Putting that into a number of months, sometimes I find it hard to conceptualize, like like a ton of days on end, but 50 to 90 or 60 to 90 additionally extremely hot days, that's two to three months. So we're talking about like the length of a summer. Or we're talking about thinking about shelter in place right now. Yeah. Your behavior and your external behavior um, being curtailed for that length of time. I think... I may have a slightly skewed perception of it because I grew up in Arizona where we have a lot of extremely hot days, but like that, to be in that kind of heat that consistently is, it's rough on your body. <laughs> it's rough on your mindset. It's rough on your um, ability to get things done. It, it's rough on infrastructure. Like there, there are a lot of things wrapped up in those 50 to 90 days, those two to three months. When we look at an environmental situation from the perspective of human experiences, rather than just analyzing physical systems, we realize that some people in some communities are experiencing the effects of different kinds of pollution plus climate change all at the same time. In the language of environmental justice, these layered effects are called cumulative impacts. Consider Neffer's school experience. I learned that her current high school has an entirely outdoor cafeteria, which is not uncommon. But she got in the habit of eating inside where it's air-conditioned. This wasn't a matter of preference, not at first. It was because she had a surgery and wasn't physically able to stay out in the heat. Prior to coming to my high school, um, Animal Pat Brown, I went to a Catholic school for nine years. Um, and we are a little bit more on the poorer side of the Catholic schools in, in, the, in the L.A. area. So we didn't have air-conditioning. Um, so whenever it would get really hot, you know, the best thing we had was just open up the doors and turn on the two fans in the classroom. So 
that's definitely when I felt it a lot more because now I can go to school and be like, okay, I have AC at school and wear a sweater and come out and it's extremely hot, but I only feel it for like the five minutes that I have to wait to get home. Um, so at my other school, I definitely felt it a lot more because, you know, I had to wear a uniform. I had to wear um, skorts and things like that. And so I was constantly sweating and it was extremely hot. And whenever it was really cold, we also felt that a lot because, you know, we, we didn't have like those systems at my other school. That affects your learning. It does. And so um, they're like tiny little effects that, that add up. And also if you have a lot of families with air conditioning at home, anyone who has health issues. So that was why like when you said at lunch, you stayed inside after your surgery, I kind of like noted that because I thought, oh, well, anyone who had that same situation would be more affected by the heat. Yeah, it definitely it was like uh and like an impediment to the learning environment because we're all distracted you know we're all like mr t's it's hot or <laughs> you know like I, i'm tired like it's hot like open the doors turn on the fans like you know like it's so hot i can't it's so annoying you know it's it's definitely it's a distraction this is why the state of California developed something called the Cal Enviro Screen to analyze the places in the state where communities are the most vulnerable so that cities and the state can prioritize addressing problems in those areas. Neffer's neighborhood is one of the most vulnerable in the state. We also talked about ways life will change as individuals try to lower their personal greenhouse gas emissions. I think maybe just in the fact that because we are kind of like a low-income neighborhood, you know, there's a lot of these renewable sources that are coming out now. People are like, just use solar panels or like hybrid cars are coming out so you can electrically charge and, you know, not waste as much gas and emit as much carbon emission and all that stuff. But um, definitely for people that are in more low income areas, it's difficult to, you know, afford all that stuff because money is a problem, you know. <laughs> um, so probably, you know, we'd probably be left behind in that, like, progress i guess you could say towards make towards you know limiting um the, the towards like mitigating climate change and all that stuff we would probably be a little bit left behind just because of like financial resources it's not just that people in her community can't buy electric cars and solar panels they also aren't air conditioning big houses taking lots of flights or buying many electronics the manufacturing processes of you know creating a lot of electronics and stuff that in itself releases a lot of fossil fuels, which, you know, obviously contributes to the problem. So, you know, people who probably don't work in that or people who don't have like all the resources to have like 10 million laptops, you know, per household. It's, you know, we weren't, we're not contributing as much because we're, we don't have as much resources to pay for the stuff that, you know, leads to it or that contributes to the problem. She meant to say production of electronics releases greenhouse gases, not fossil fuels, but you get the point. Here's Nancy again. Climate change is very relational um, and the way it breaks down along socioeconomic lines and the way it breaks down a along racial lines, the way it breaks down along gender and requires us to work across all of those divides in order to solve it, to solve it in a fair and equitable way. And Nefertiti did a really great job of describing what that looks like in her neighborhood and the fear that in a green revolution, her neighborhood might be left behind because money is a problem. And so she's taking this, these environmental issues and she's applying them to the economics and the specific situation that's happening on the ground level that she sees every day. And that is what's missing in a lot of the conversations in school, it seems like, in regards to climate change. The technologies we associate with mitigation and adaptation meaning solar panels, electric cars, air conditioners. Those are out of financial reach for many families, including a lot of Neffer's neighbors. The good news is that even if all people can't currently afford electric cars, the increasing electrification of vehicles should generally improve air quality. The less good news is that we won't all benefit equally from this average improvement. Air quality is variable from one neighborhood to another, to say nothing of a city as big as L.A., People in some communities literally breathe worse air than people in other communities, based on both their location and their infrastructure. How is this related to climate change? Hot days increase ground-level ozone. Unlike ozone, high in the atmosphere, which we need, ground-level ozone is one of the components of that famous L.A. smog. It contributes to respiratory asthma, pneumonia, and even premature death, 
More heat will also increase fire danger across the state. In addition to danger and the devastation of communities, fires generate clouds of smoke, often filled with various toxins. The young people I spoke with already have personal experience with poor air quality, both from fire and from smog. They've already felt its effects. Um, there are some things that maybe I do worry about, like a lot of the fires that have been going on, because I do feel that sometimes they could get too close and start harming us, like harming things around us, like, you know, our homes, schools, businesses. Um, let me ask you about that. Did Have you guys had experience with having smoke blow into town and like not being able to go outside because of the air quality? Um, yes, this just recently, the fires were becoming a little too much where they did at school, they didn't want us outside for too long because of the air quality for a lot of the kids. And also because it was just, they didn't know if the fires were going to, you know, get like pushed into like our city. They did get pushed into like our city. Like there was a lot of times where me and my mom probably couldn't go out because it was too much for her to take in. And there was a lot of times where I can I didn't want to go outside because I don't want to get sick from all of the all the smoke that we're inhaling. Basically, like all the sports weren't allowed to practice. They said, like, when you get out of school, go straight home. Don't like go like hang out in a park, which is like, you know, very alarming to me because I love like going outside and like park, beach, whatever. They said, don't do those things. Just go home. Um, they recommended like not having all the windows open, which my family usually has the windows open. So just like, again, turn on the AC, not a great alternative, but you know, um, and it was just like, it wasn't necessarily scary, but it was kind of like eerie. Cause like the sky changed colors. Like if that makes sense, it was a little like, uh, you know, I didn't like it. And then as you're driving down the hill, like there's this one hill that I go down to get to my house. Um, as I drive down that hill, I can see like the entire horizon and so like the ocean. And then we have like our islands off the coast, like Catalina. But like in those days, there was like a really strong haze and it almost looked like, like apocalyptic in a sense. And then I was like, you know, had that fleeting thought of like, what if this was every single day, you know? And that was scary. LA is such a industrial city. So you can go like literally you can go like half an hour away. You can go to downtown. And um, I've actually seen this a couple of times at the Gettysburg Museum. You can, you know, you look out like from the little terrace and you're like, oh, wow, it's so pretty. But you see the, you see like the, the layers of like thickness and then from the sky and it's like, you know, it's pollution. And then like, um, and, and you know, you have to get away from it for a while. You know, you're like, oh man, I live in a polluted city. I got used to this polluted air. And it's unfortunate because yeah, we do we do get we do get used to it. Like um, we take a couple of trips to Big Bear sometimes, and my mom usually says so that we can go breathe some fresh air because <laughs> um, you know all this pollution. <laughs> One, it was really like the air up there is just different. You know, it's it's like crisper. I don't know how to explain it. I just love breathing up there. And we did a scavenger hunt where we had to run a lot, and then I was just like having the time of my life because I love running. But like. You get to run with like super clean. It's just, it was really fun. But then also um, like the trees, we were right across a lake. It was just really pretty. And like my favorite place is a forest, so. Earlier in the episode, I mentioned that the Los Angeles region can expect to experience increasing heat, worsening air quality, greater wildfire danger, more variability in precipitation, sea level rise, and new infectious diseases. Monique, Niaz, Nefer, and Maddie and Faith provided some insight into how heat waves and air quality already affect life in the LA region. And you also learned that those effects will be more intense in some communities than in others. Scientists aren't certain what kind of change the LA region will see in terms of wildfires. Some climate models predict large increases in fire, while others fairly small ones. It's complicated because wildfires are affected by the amount of vegetation in the land, heat, wind, and precipitation each year. Plus, we have an effect. There are things we can do in our landscape stewardship and our building practices to make wildfires better or worse. One important component in the fire equation is water. Not just how much we get, 
but the variability in that precipitation. The particular pattern of when we have storms, when we have dry periods, and how that changes year over year. Native people have lived in the Los Angeles region for at least 11,000 years, since before the end of the last glacial period. We haven't yet uncovered enough archaeological evidence to know exactly whose ancestors lived where over those many thousands of years. But we do know the region is the ancestral land of many peoples whose descendants still live in the area today. These include the Shumash, Kich, Tongwa, Peumkawishum, Ahachimen, and Fernandeño Tatavian peoples. Farther east, where Riverside is today, is the ancestral land of the Kawiya. Archaeological evidence suggests that, over these thousands of years, people settled particular regions, then migrated to settle elsewhere for hundreds of years, then reoccupied their previous sites. One theory is that the inhabitants were moving in response to changing access to water, as California rotated through natural cycles of wet and dry periods. Or, in other words, they modified things about how and where they lived in response to changing water conditions. By contrast, modern Los Angeles exists because of water engineering projects that move millions of gallons of water from the Colorado River, the Owens Valley in eastern California, and the northern Sierras. About 60% of all water used in the region is piped in. The other 40% comes from groundwater. But for all our modern technology, we are now learning the same lesson Native peoples learned long before U.S. settlers ever arrived here. Water availability in California is changeable, and when it shifts, we need to change our behavior in response. Between now and 2100, scientists are predicting significantly more variability in precipitation, both in this L.A. area and across the state. Even if the average rainfall over a series of years stays the same, the difference from one year to the next is likely to become more extreme. What does that mean? On the one hand, this means more, drier drought years. In fact, it's very likely we'll experience a series of 10 or 20 unusually dry years in a row. And at the same time, they're predicting bigger storms when we do get them. By 2100, the wettest day of the year may produce 25 to 30% more precipitation. And, as we've seen in news from around the world in the past several months, Large storms can cause flooding and mudslides, leading to injury, death, and also, of course, extensive damage to homes and infrastructure. Every now and then we will get showers, you know, but it, again, it's like very small drizzling, whatever. There were like maybe three or four days last year where it just came down super hard all day, which we, we've never had that in like forever. And um, when that happened, my school flooded. <laughs> Um, so then they had to cancel school and then, uh, they were like, you know, the school wasn't built to like withstand that. So like for the next maybe few weeks or months, they had like buckets, you know, in the hallways because like for some reason, a long time after it was still like dripping, uh, and the, they, the roof got damaged. So they had to like redo the roof and like that cost them a bunch of money. And like, we couldn't go back during the summer to do practice or whatever. Cause they were rebuilding everything. I looked up the storm Niaz mentioned and found lots of articles about it. One photograph showed cars on a road, only their roof lines visible above the water. That's the sort of thing that registers as an obvious problem, even to children. But unlike the past residents of this area, most people in cities in California today only know we're running low on water when someone shows us a photo of a drying reservoir or a water agency tells us to conserve. That makes sense, considering our water system, but it also makes us very unresponsive to changing conditions. Unless we're faced with immediate economic hardship or a lack of water, drought doesn't feel like a crisis. I, I remember always our parents like yelling at us, just like, or not yelling, but just like telling us like, hey, turn off the water, turn off the water when you're brushing your teeth, because then, because then water is going to get wasted. I remember our grandma always reusing, um, water that she didn't drink from her water bottles and putting them in her plants stuff like that so i just remember lots of like little hacks throughout the years and so do you remember 
I do. A lot of my friends, we would joke around too. Like we would play with the hose or something, and they're like, "Stop it! We're in a drought!" Like we that was a big joke too. I was like, "Wait, aren't we actually in a drought?" Like I'm so confused because we would always joke about it too. Like and make fun of it. We're like, "Oh, we're like dying," but like we would always say, "We're in a desert," so like that's like kind of the point. So my teacher, he lived like kind of like 20 minutes from here. He had the water cut off, like in his neighborhood and like neighboring neighborhoods. Um, so they didn't have access to water. And he was like telling our class about it. And he was like, you guys have to be very careful with the amount of water that you're using, whatever. And then, you know, the whole, like, if it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it down. Like that was a big thing, um, which, you know, obviously grossed out Newport beach kids cause it's Newport beach, you know, but, uh, when I came home, like on the drive home. So like, you know, kind of trademark thing here is like the green lawns, like, the, the trees everything there was like a whole a bunch of signs that said like the new green is brown you know like that one so like they're like let your grass die don't water the grass things like that which a lot of people still water their grass uh which kind of pissed me off but like you know i was 12 so i didn't really know that much about it anyway but um also we didn't like i wasn't allowed my parents wouldn't let me like flush a lot. Uh, I had to take very short showers. We had like these little clock things that they give out at school um, that like, once you turn it upside down, it's like a, you know, yeah, an hourglass. Yeah. Thank you. And then it kind of like, it was like that for a while. And then you get kind of used to it. And then one day it's almost like, it just went away. Cause like, I didn't think about it ever again. Almost all the young people I interviewed around the state remembered the drought. Whether they experienced it as a painful crisis or a minor event depended mostly on where they lived. Drought is a much bigger issue in agricultural areas than it is in cities because the economy is more closely tied to the water supply. But it's worth noting one thing if you live in an urban area like Los Angeles. 50% of all urban water use in California goes to watering lawns. That means the best way of reducing water use in cities is, as much as possible, to replace grass with native plants that need less water. Does this mean millions of people need to migrate away from Los Angeles? No. Migration is a common adaptation to changing climate, but it's not our only option. The cities of the region already only exist because our current statewide water infrastructure moves so much water into the area. That infrastructure is going to need to change a lot to adapt to increasing precipitation variability. All Californians will need to be more responsive to changes in our shrinking water supply. This means significantly increasing our water conservation, stormwater capture, and water recycling. So that's the future. More and more intense heat waves like the ones Monique, Faith, and Maddie described. More floods, more drought, more days with bad air quality. There's a lot more to say about climate changes that are predicted in the LA area. In addition to directly affecting our bodies, these changes are predicted to do very costly damage to infrastructure. For example, high heat will disrupt air travel and shipping. Coastal flooding and extreme rain events will damage roads and railroad tracks. Sea level rise and dangerous sewage treatment plants. It is too late to stop these changes from happening at all. The heat waves, poor air quality, droughts, and floods you heard about here, they are going to continue. What we do still get to decide, though, is how intense they will be and how we will experience them. The intensity will depend on how much CO2 we release into the atmosphere. As you learned in the first episode, to keep global temperature rise at plus 1.5 degrees Celsius, we need to end our reliance on fossil fuels within the next decade. This mitigation is a problem that needs to be addressed at the international, national, state, and local levels. How we experience climate change will depend on adaptation. 
Think about Nefer's experience in her two different schools. School infrastructure protected her health after she had surgery. The difference between a good, safe learning environment and constant distraction wasn't the weather, it was the resources to adapt to the weather. Think about this idea from her life and then expand it to encompass the whole region and every aspect of life. As you go through your days, try to notice infrastructure and other features of urban design. That means the air circulation inside your school, whether there's shade at the bus stop, the size and location of trees in your neighborhood, that local storm drain that backs up when it rains. We, as a society, control those things. We choose what to prioritize. Voters, politicians, and government administrators decide what to fix, what to build, and what to leave unfunded. And this is another place where you can have an influence, even if you can't vote yet. I want to end this episode with what it feels like to grow up with climate change in the background. Climate change can be an intensely emotional experience, but just like the COVID pandemic, it's playing out against a backdrop of everyday life. So what is it like to live your normal life, to feel excitement about important life milestones, while also knowing the climate is shifting and with it changing the shape of your future? I would say that I walk sometimes, but I don't because even though I do know my way around, it's a lot of street ways and sometimes there's not sidewalks. So I'm mostly driven around to get to where I have to go. Okay. Are you looking forward to getting your driver's license? I'm so ready. I'm just, I'm patiently, not really, but I'm ready. How do you, um, how do you think that's going to feel? I don't really know. I feel like it's an, it's an excitement in me that I haven't felt before. Like, even though I know that you still have to be cautious, which I will be, but I get a rush in me, like, because I get, like, that fast to finish type of vibe where I just want to start a race or something. So I think I'll just be excited. I ask many young people about driving because in a lot of ways, I think it's emblematic of this issue. On the one hand, According to the California Air Resources Board, our personal driving accounts for 28% of the greenhouse gas emissions in the state every year. But on the other hand, in many places, everything from the physical infrastructure to our pop culture encourages us to drive. The LA region is famous for its highways. And for those of us fortunate enough to have access to one, driving a car as a young person, as a teenager, offered many of us our first taste of genuine adult independence and privacy. So it's hard to untangle. I asked Monique how she felt about climate change more personally. It's more of an issue that, like, if you make it affects your personal life, then, then that's how it affects you. But it's more of a thing that just goes on in the world that we have no control over and we don't have control over if it affects our personal life or if it's just something that's just there. Other people sometimes find climate change consuming more of their thoughts. Here are Faith and Maddie. So in the next 30 years, I kind of see less blue skies if we continuously like go at the rate we're going. Just like dirtier air, um, just lots of like grossness around, you know? Do you, um, is it something that feel like, what's your, what's your level of worry about it? Is it like inconvenient or do you feel anxious about it or do you how do you how what how do you feel about it when I think about it like at an intense level it makes my anxiety like go all the way up to a 10 but in my day-to-day -day life I tend to not think about it and so it's usually like it's not even in my brain yet but I know that's the worst part because if we're not thinking about it then nothing's really gonna happen but it's there. I can understand if it ratchets your anxiety up to a 10, why you would not want to think about it also. Yeah, definitely. How about you? How, how do you think about it? Same thing. Like, I won't think about it, like, on my everyday, like, life. Then I'll see, like, a tweet that says, like, something about it and, like, show this video. And I was like, oh, crap. Like, we actually need to do something. Like, not just sit around. Like, we really only have, like, a couple years to help. Like, because yeah. I saw this tweet that said, like, oh, we pretty much only have, like, two years to save the planet. And I was like, 
what? <laughs> like, we do? <laughs> so. And when you see that, what do you think that means is supposed to happen in two years? I know. I think about, I'm like, we can't, like, do anything in two years as a whole planet. Like, we're just going to die. <laughs> like, the bees are going extinct, too. Like, we're just going to die soon. So... <laughs> <laughs> I like that we're all laughing about this. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, you good? You okay there? Obviously, none of us actually find the idea of global climate catastrophe funny. But sometimes the size of the problem seems so absurd that what else can you do? What else do you imagine about your own future in terms of like where you'll live, family, I don't know, anything else? Like whatever you happen to imagine. Well, it's kind of a tricky question because when I think of the future, I don't really think of like, this is going to sound really weird, but like, I kind of have this idea in my head that, you know, I'm not going to make it that far just because like, like, I don't even know if I would want to make it that far, you know, like I'm not trying to like, but you know, it's just with everything that's going on in the world, I'm kind of like concerned and I'm just like, I, you know, Ideally, what would happen in my future would be, you know, I live somewhere like in the mountains and I do work from home. But then like, you know, if it's like something like being a doctor or like a lawyer, then, you know, I travel to other places as necessary. Um, and then I don't think I would have kids just because like it's a lot to bring them into a world, world like this, you know, unless I feel like I've made it good enough where I would want them to be in it. I'm not going to like make that choice just yet. What? Do you think that, um, I don't know, local and state government officials should know about what it feels like to be growing up now? Very opinionated on this matter specifically, because I feel like before, you know, the pressure is with like, you have to find a good job. You have to like have a family. You have to do this, make money, whatever. And in some cases, like immigrate to another country, you know, whatever, find a better life. But like in this situation, you can't, like, it feels like we can't do that. Like I'm put in a situation just by being born. And I mean, I guess like as a child, like I did things that were not like climate change, like, you know, thoughtful, but like, how was I supposed to know? You know, I was a kid, but you know, growing up, it's kind of scary because like, I'm not sure how much time we have left. I'm not sure how much time I have left. You know, I like don't want to have kids because I'm scared to put them in a world where like they could face something as you know scary as that, just not having a future. And just, <laughs> I think that, you know, everyone who's, you know, either like, you know, working, you know, the people who you mentioned, I feel like they need to know that this is not just like, it's not one of those little obstacles that people are used to having. This is something where like the entire world has to face it and the entire world has to deal with it. And there's nowhere that we can run to, you know? And like, that's the scariest part is that like, as a kid, you want to take shelter somewhere. You want to feel safe, but like, there's no feeling of safety. What was your sentiment about her response there? Did it feel as, as kind of like giving up as just sort of like, ah, there's nothing I can do about it. Or did you read that differently? I, read this differently and I heard this differently in the way that she spoke about it. Niaz spoke with the kind of weariness that I hear people my age speak about it, about climate change with. And to be clear, you know, Niaz and I are separated by maybe 10 years. And so there's not much of a difference there in terms of time. But what I heard Niaz describe was I don't know if I'm going to, how far I'm going to make it, but here are the things I'm considering if I do. Do I want to have kids? What will that look like? And so she was able to move past the we're going to die statement and start synthesizing some deeper thoughts about what she foresees the next 80 years of her life looking like and what she needs to do in order to ensure that she is not contributing to the problem and is not putting other people in harm's way. Um, it, it, it sounded uh, it sounded like a very adult statement that I am having in conversations with uh, friends and family members and other graduate students. And I, I think what really struck me about it was the weariness associated with with her words and her tone. 
So one of the other interesting things about this report for me was that in reading the other California assessment reports, regional assessment reports, they've been very focused on the mechanisms of climate change. But what this report seemed to do really well um, that made it stand out to me in comparison to to other reports was that the scientists who put it together not only talked about the mechanisms and the processes, but they focused on the interdependencies of impacts. So how humans and ecology interact, how um, temperature impacts human health, which then impacts our economies and education levels and number of school days attended. Yeah, I was struck also by the, by the sense that this was potentially traumatizing for people. Right, that like experiencing this again and again, and the various things that would be associated with it. Um, like, so you have a weather event, or you have persistent heat, or you have other things that, um, you know, are not anticipated or perhaps not planned for, and that has economic effects and also has like other types of neighborhood effects and school effects, and that those things all have emotional impact. And I found that very resonant given the current moment that we're living in. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and the report teased out some of those like acute, more instantaneous traumas that might be associated with like specific events. And they also talked about these longer term um, impacts on physical and emotional health, which included chronic depression and suicides. And interestingly, uh, this report also talked about guilt and anxiety associated with uh, climate action or climate inaction. And, you know, these are things that come up in our everyday conversations with people when we talk about climate change, like, oh, are you using a reusable straw? And people saying, oh, no, but like, I plan to buy one or oh, no, like, you know, and, and there's like some maybe guilt, yeah, underlying that statement. And, and these guilts can build and grow into longer term anxiety. And I think that's something that we're hearing over and over again in these interviews is that students are growing up with a certain low level anxiety or high level anxiety about climate change and what it means for their futures. And and these are kind of like cumulative growing anxieties that they are experiencing. And, and they're not trivial. Part of this feeling has to do with the very real size of the challenge we're facing. But part of it also has to do with what young people learn about climate change and what they don't learn. This is going to sound kind of silly, but I feel like at my school, at least, it's almost as if climate change is political. You know, so like you can't talk about, you know, what's going on. So they only teach like, okay, this is like, you know, they teach about like greenhouse gases and everything and like how things are trapped in the atmosphere, but they don't talk about like, this is the effect it's having or like, this is what else is going on, you know? So most of that stuff um, I found out either online or through family. Faith and Maddie had different experiences, even though they're in the same school system. They try to stay very simple. They don't try to be like too political about it. Um, they just tell you the science fact and what they believe and what it's doing to the earth so far. They don't go, oh, this could be our earth in 20 years. They don't go that deep into it. Oh, so you mean they tell you about like what people feel like they have measured, but not what the predictions are? Yes, exactly. And so um, I kind of wish they went a bit deeper in it. But then again, they're kind of not allowed to go that political. So, yeah. What about you? What do you like or not like? Um, I would kind of disagree with my teacher. He went into more depth with it. He showed us the science part of it, like with our lithosphere and our atmosphere and everything like that. Then he would show us videos like, oh, this would happen and this is going to happen to the ice caps and this is going to happen to this. Um, he would just show us more into depth about it because he was super interested in that. Um, but now I have a different teacher this year but he's a great teacher and he would teach us saying he would make us throw away our water bottles like he would be so strict about that and he's like oh do this do that oh you're using that you have to use this and then he'd be really nice about it though he was he cared a lot about climate change and stuff like that because climate change has become a politicized issue it can be very difficult to talk about it in ways that are not mechanistic. So in ways that where we're not just describing processes that are happening and, 
animals that are being affected in far off places. Uh, and a lot of times teachers do not have the resources or the time or money at their disposal to suddenly like flip that narrative on its head and start talking about climate change in terms of how it affects our neighborhoods um, and how it affects our specific local areas and and to talk about it in um, in a way that is very real that some might consider politicized but is is very factually based. Yeah, it was really interesting because Maddie and Faith both described their teachers as needing to avoid politics and that they could go to their teachers after class if they wanted to. And 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 Maddie also talked more about a teacher who spoke more in class about ways that students could alter their behavior. So that certainly was happening. But they were both clearly aware of the fact that it's a politicized topic and that there was a line that their teachers felt like they couldn't cross talking to the class as a whole and that they maybe could like if a student went to them, they would be happy to provide more information. And I, I found that line really interesting because it's the line where climate change intersects with humans. I was a teacher for a long time. I know that what you say as a teacher and what students hear aren't always the same thing. I also know this is harder than we're making it sound, both for political reasons and also just because of time pressures. But, and I'm speaking now especially to my history social science colleagues, the tools that students need to use to address climate change are universal parts of a democracy. This topic does have a place in your classroom. If you want to learn more, keep an eye out for episodes about engagement with local government and different kinds of activism. You might also like the episode on the Sierras. There, you'll hear from Brooke, who lives in the Owens Valley, which is where a lot of LA's water comes from. We have like the canal, which is the water that the deep, WP takes and sends to LA so we go swim in that okay. um, <laughs> we go swim in <laughs> LA's water <laughs> we know that the water has to be treated so we're like okay whatever we're like haha you kind of drink our pee water or something like that <laughs> so like we'll like laugh around about it it's a good reminder that we're all connected sometimes in ways you didn't want to imagine To learn more about how climate change will affect the LA region, check out the Future Imperfect page at calglobaled.org. You'll find a link to the state climate assessment, plus lots of articles about the topics mentioned in this episode. Thanks to Nancy Freitas for her extensive guidance interpreting the science, and to Richard Duke, who composed and recorded the music. And if you visit the webpage, be sure to take a moment to look at the cover art by Sierra Claxton. Future Imperfect is a production of the California Global Education Project, without whose generous support this would not have been possible.